0: Well we printed out the whole of this section because I want you to see that there's a continuity Paul has been talking about the way that he's been living among them how they've responded to the good news of the gospel and now he's starting to say this has got implications for how you live Uh, last week we looked at the implications for sexuality this week there are implications for their work and the thread that holds the two things together is that of love. And uh, as we look at it, I think it's fair to say that there's an enormous amount of confusion about the nature of work, Um, confusion just in our society. And part of it, I think, comes about because of our affluence. Um, There are parts of the world today, and certainly through history, when the question of what you would do for a job just didn't exist. You would do what your parents did. Uh, If you could get a job at all, you'd be very, very thankful. And now, of course, uh, particularly in an affluent society, we can pick and choose the kinds of jobs that we want to do. And Christians, I think, have kind of um, bought into a struggle that comes from this to try and work out what's the best thing that they could possibly do. Uh, We like the idea that there are some jobs that are somehow more Christian than other jobs some jobs perhaps that might be more helpful, Uh, we speak of the helping professions, we speak of people doing things that are a vocation, something that they're called to. But it's interesting that by and large uh, in the rest of the world they don't so much speak of vocation, you're not so much called to work on the rice paddy that your parents are working on and that their parents were working on, and so on, it does seem to be something that's fairly middle class and part of affluent society. And with this idea of there being something that's special, we get distressed and anxious about tapping into the right thing because we've got to find a job that's going to be satisfying. We've got to find work that will be rewarding, we've got to be fulfilled in our professions, in our vocations. But the sad reality is that as we fulfill ourselves, we are unfulfilled in response. We keep searching for the next thing but it doesn't actually deliver. Now it shouldn't surprise us, this perspective on work, because if we read our Bibles we'd know that that would be the case. Work is given by God in the very beginning. The man and the woman are to work in the garden. Work is a good gift that comes from God. But when Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God, work is part of the curse. And so rather than it being simply an enjoyable and relational exercise, that the man and the woman can enjoy together, that God will see them uh, enjoying in his garden. They're cast out of the Garden of Eden and work is cursed. And now there'll be weeds and there'll be thistles and there'll be toil and there'll be stress. And it's not just out there, it's actually in the home as well. The, The curse is on the woman. Now there'll be pain in childbirth. Now there'll be sickness, there'll be suffering, there'll be... Stress. there'll be anxiety, there'll be depression, there'll be violence. There's all kinds of things that have now come into the world. And so work, yes, it's a good gift from God, but it's been cursed because of our rebellion against God and it's now difficult and it's hard. You go on in the Bible to the centre of the Bible and you find this book called Ecclesiastes. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, probably King Solomon, with all the resources in the world, sets out to find meaning and purpose in life. And one of the places that he looks for this is in the nature of work. And he says in this this book, I applied myself to work. I worked hard. I built great projects. I, I achieved all kinds of things. And then he sat back and he looked at it and he thought, what does man get from all of his progress? What return do you get from your work? You build something great and then you die and you leave it to someone who comes after you and who knows what they're going to do with it. You see, Ecclesiastes gives us a window into the fact that we won't find satisfaction by looking to work to provide it, nor relationships, nor pleasure, nor wealth, nor drinking, nor any of these things that people might search for satisfaction. But... If you look to the one who provides all these things, if you look to God, then God may enable you to be satisfied in your work. You see, there's a perspective that comes in the Bible that shows us that work is not the thing that defines who we are. It's not where we'll find meaning and purpose. But if we look to God, then work is to be valued, is to be enjoyed, is to be appreciated. Now you come to the New Testament and it seems like the New Testament doesn't say a great deal about work but in fact I think it says some very profound things about work and in two verses today we're going to see some of that. Let's pick it up uh, in this passage and I said that the theme that's kind of been running through and you can see it there in um, the first few verses gets picked up again in verse 9 About love, verse 9. Now about love for one another, or if you've got a different version, it might say about brotherly love. In the original, it's a compound word. Brotherly love, Philadelphia. Uh, You've probably heard that word in other contexts. Philadelphia, it's really family love that's on view. It's God's will, sorry, verse 9. Now about your love for one another, your Philadelphia, We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Now, the first thing that we discover about this family love, this brotherly love, is that God himself has taught the Thessalonians that they should love one another. Now, how has he done that? Paul was in Thessalonica for only three weeks. How was it that they have learned from God himself that they should love one another. Well it could be that they've already got into the Old Testament because in the Old Testament of course the two great commands were love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and the second was and love your neighbour as yourself. Uh, It's a big theme that you should love and God the Father through his word in the Old Testament taught this or it could be that they've been hearing about the message of Jesus and Jesus said you are not simply to love your neighbour but to love your enemy. He says that you are to love one another. Jesus is the one who teaches that we are called to love God first and to love our neighbour as ourselves. It might be that or it might be The promise of the Old Testament that in the new covenant, the spirit of God would place God's word upon our hearts. So the spirit would teach us that we are to love one another. I think it might have that in mind, because if you look back at verse eight, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. We're not told exactly how it is that God teaches the Thessalonians that they should love one another, but that he does. That's a core thing for them, to love. It's a a key thing for us to love one another as God's people. And how is this to work out? Well, Paul says, in fact, you do love one another. You do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. This more and more theme, it's come up before, hasn't it? So back in verse 1, at the top of the page, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, that is to please God. Now, in verse 9 and 10, he's calling on them to love one another and to do that more and more. And when you think about the two things that he's encouraged them to do more and more, one, to please God, two, to love one another. What is the first command? To love God. The second, to love one another. There is a key message that's come from God and that Paul encourages them to keep doing more and more. It's not a command, is it, that you can say, been there, done that. Oh, yes, I pleased God. Past? Never again? No, we're to keep on pleasing God. Oh, yeah, well, I, I did love my brother. Once. No, no, keep on loving one another. But the way that Paul's going to now express this is by thinking about how they go about their work. And it's, it's quite a curious thing that, Almost, it seems, out of nowhere, he says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. How is it that he says love one another more and more and immediately goes on to make it your ambition to live a quiet life? What's the connection? between these things. Well, I want to take a step back uh, for a second and say that as we read through uh, the letter of 1 Thessalonians, it's a little bit like listening to one end of a phone call. Um, If you've ever been in a room when someone else is on the phone, And you can't hear what the other person is saying at the other end of the phone because it's not on speaker, sometimes you can kind of work out who it is, can't you, by the things that have been spoken about. Sometimes you can really kind of get a a window into the nature of the conversation because of the detail that comes through one end. That's pretty much what it's like reading the letters. Um, We don't know the background, We, we don't know the letter that that might come from different churches through to Paul that he then responds to. We don't know the circumstances in the places that he might be talking about, but I think we can still pick up a reasonable amount and particularly on this issue of work. I've printed down the bottom of the page another verse. Um, It's from chapter five of 1 Thessalonians. It says this, we urge you brothers and sisters Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. When he speaks uh, to them about the nature of work, it seems that there are some within the church who are idle and disruptive. Um, In fact, Paul, it, it seems, doesn't really get listened to very well after he writes this letter because. He sends another letter to the Thessalonians, and we'll get to this in a few weeks. But in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3, he says this. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you. We hear that there are some among you who are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food that they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Um, In a short letter, you get roughly 20% of it in 2 Thessalonians devoted to this issue of people who are idle and disruptive, who are refusing to work, who aren't paying for their food. So they're they're bludging off their brothers and sisters and their idleness is their choice. This is not just chronic unemployment, this is not that there's a crisis in the economy and they can't get a job, this is people who are idle being busybodies. Now we don't know the background exactly. It might be that there was some circumstance that was making it difficult for people to get jobs. Some suggest that the issue, particularly because of the topics that we're going to go on to next week and the week after, had to do with the fact that they they were expecting that the return of Jesus would be soon. So they were thinking, if the return of Jesus is soon, why bother working? I mean, I don't enjoy working anyway because it's under the curse of God. If Jesus is coming back, then what the heck? I might as well just hang around and annoy people. I mean, it's much more fun than going to work. And, of course, if you don't go to work and you don't get the money, then you've got to be dependent upon other people to be able to get money for food or else you're just hoping to get an invitation over to their place and get fed by them. And you can see the kind of scenario that may lie behind this. But at the end of the day, we don't know. Um, You'll read commentaries. If you've got a study Bible, it might give you an explanation down the bottom. We're not told exactly. But we do know the response that Paul calls for. And the response that he calls for, that is, they are to work. They're told here to... Make it their ambition to live a quiet life, not to make a fuss, not to carry on, not to make themselves an annoyance around about them. They're to mind their own business and to work with their hands just as we told you. And not just just as we told you, but if you remember back to chapters two and three, just as we showed you. When Paul was with them, he worked night and day so as not to be a burden to them. He worked with his hands so that he would be able to provide food for himself and not have to bludge off the people around about him. But why is this an issue? Why does he give it particular attention, not once, but twice in this letter and then a major section in the next letter? Well, I take it we need to look at the reasons for work. Look at verse 12, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you, so that, and here are the reasons, your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. The reasons that are given for work here can easily be glossed over but their gospel shaped reasons. Who is he concerned about? Paul's concerned about their Christian witness and their godliness in relationship. That is, they are to work and commit themselves to keeping at their work, using their time well, using their hands well, being focused on knuckling down and doing what's required so that their daily life may win the respect of outsiders. If the Christians become known as the people who just lays around doing nothing, if they get a reputation for being those who are bludging off others, that brings the gospel into disrepute. So Paul's motivation here. In focusing them on working has in mind not just themselves, but on the witness that they are to those around about them. Paul's concerned that people take the message of Jesus seriously, and they won't take the message of Jesus seriously if they don't see the messengers as being people who take Jesus seriously. They are to focus on their work so that their daily life may win the respect of outsiders and also so that they won't be dependent on anybody. Now, this is not to say that there won't be times when we need each other. I mean, the New Testament will give us countless examples of Christians helping one another, of looking out for each other, of caring for each other, of encouraging each other, of providing for each other. That's not speaking about that issue here. It's talking about the one who chooses not to pull their weight. The one who just deliberately looks for handouts. The one who is not concerned to do what they should do, who ends up becoming a burden to the people around them rather than one who lifts the burdens. Of the people around them. So the reasons for work that Paul gives here are focused not on yourself, your satisfaction, your vocation, your um, fulfillment in life, but they're focused out there. What's the impact on the community? What do others see as they look at us working? And the impact on the Christian community. That is, we're not looking to be a burden to other people, but looking to be able to bear one another's burdens. You see, one of the primary reasons that's given to us here for work is so that we'll be able to take care of ourselves, our families, those in need, our church. That is, rather than than being people who are looking to receive, Christians are fundamentally people who are looking to give. And work is an opportunity to be able to do that, often in the work itself. See, the the nature of work is not for self, it's actually intended to be for those around about us. You think about the jobs, the, the person who cleans the streets, why are they doing that? Because they love brooms, They enjoy dust? No, because they're making the street clean for the people who will use it. Those who are selling in the shops, those who are working for the rural fire service. The nature of work is to be committed to the people around about. And so giving up and choosing not to work is removing the Thessalonian Christians from a a primary opportunity to seek the welfare of those around about them. And that damages the message of the gospel. It also, of course, means that you become dependent. You're looking to get rather than looking to give. The reason for work, when you think about it, is that you might be able to pay your own way and be able to pay for those who can't pay their own way. To take care of the poor. To look out for those who are struggling. To be able to encourage the preaching and ministry of the gospel. We have work so as to be able to care for those around about us. Now, yeah. all this is employment work. What about unpaid work? What about work at home? What about work with with children? What, What about voluntary work? What about retirees? See, I think we can apply these principles whether we are paid for our work or not paid for our work. Whether it is voluntary work done in the community, done as a retiree, or whether it is home-focused, children care, domestic work. It is still a reason to be able to provide for ourselves, to take care of those who are dependent on us, and the witness that that makes to the community around about us still stands. God has made us to occupy ourselves for the sake of others. Not to bludge around for the sake of ourselves. And there's a gospel implication for this. Well, let me draw a couple of things uh, from this before we finish up. Notice in this, as Paul talks about spiritual matters, pleasing God, loving one another, being taught by God in verse 9 there's no divide between spiritual and practical the person who is impacted by God by his word by the Holy Spirit in our lives will work that out in the practical circumstances of work and rest it's not that church stuff is the spiritual and Monday to Friday, being on the tools stuff is the practical. Now we're 24 seven Christians and the impact of our lives will be felt in the Christian community and in the wider community. Secondly, notice that work is framed here as an opportunity for love. I don't know what you thought when you saw the heading or when Tim commented on it, loving work. I imagine that some of you would have thought, well, that's not me. I don't love my work. But that's not the point. The point is that work is intended to be loving. We work so as to love. That's God's purpose here the help that the work brings about, but also the income that enables you to love by not being dependent and being able to provide for others. They're loving reasons for work. When you think about what you do throughout the week, whether it's primarily in the home, In the office, on the property, in the factory, at the school, wherever it might be, are you thinking about your work as an opportunity to love? Are you doing that more and more? Because God gives us work that we might look out not for ourselves but for those around about us of course dependent on that income means we are supporting ourselves and our families, those in need around about us our church, people on the mission field people who are suffering from natural disasters famine and inequalities all kinds of opportunities to be able to look out for others and to do that more and more.